Well, good morning. Great to be with you. My name is Tim, and we're going to jump into a new series, as you've heard, in 2 Samuel Rise and Fall kicking off. And so I thought I would begin this morning by helping us to think a little bit about the kingdom of God. See, I don't know if you've uh, thought much about this before, but I reckon the kingdom of God is the central theme of the Bible, uh, the central dynamic at work in the Christian life, and ultimately the trajectory of all things. And so I recognize that uh, not everyone here today would describe themselves as a Christian. Uh, If that's you, um, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Uh, But for those of us who do, for those of us who say, I am a believer, uh, we pray that the kingdom would come. What do I mean? Well, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Okay, where? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for the kingdom to come, right? When, When we pray for the kingdom to come, we're effectively asking God, would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Make earth a kingdom of glory, of righteousness, of peace, of blessing, of justice. Now, why would Jesus tell his disciples to pray for the kingdom? Well, part of it has to do with the fact that the kingdom was the central theme of Jesus' ministry. And so, uh, when he begins his ministry, the Gospel of Mark tells us, Mark 1.15, Jesus begins the first words, he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, history is on the very cusp of it, we're on the brink of it, it's at hand. And then throughout his ministry, he tells parables of the kingdom. And so the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a man who sows seed in a field and waits for the harvest. The kingdom is the central theme of his ministry. It's also the central dynamic at work in the Christian experience. If you are a Christian, then on the one hand, you have entered already the kingdom of God. And so uh, from Colossians 1.13, we read, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. You're in the kingdom. On the other hand, it's also something we look forward to. And so, this time from 2 Peter 1, 10 to 11, if you do these things, you'll never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In Christian experience, the kingdom is both now and not yet. It's both present and future. It's the central experience of the Christian life. It's also the content of the mission, the Christian mission. And so, last one for you, Matthew 24, 14. Jesus tells his disciples, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Whether the words are used or not, when the gospel is preached, the kingdom is preached. Because that's what it is. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And so, again, I'll say I'm persuaded that the kingdom of God is the central theme of the Bible It's the main dynamic at work or the central theme, if you like, of the Christian life. And it is ultimately the trajectory of all things. The reason I bring that up is, and this probably isn't surprising given what we've just said, uh, the kingdom of God is also the central theme of the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, You see, when Jesus arrives in Mark's Gospel 1.15 and says, the time is at hand, the kingdom of God is at, or the time is near, the kingdom of God is at hand, He's not introducing a brand new concept where everyone's thinking, hmm, kingdom of God, what is that? I haven't heard of that before. No, no, no. They were looking for the kingdom. They were waiting for the kingdom. They were expecting the kingdom to come. And so much of their expectation about what the kingdom of God would look like 
had been shaped by, had been patterned after a guy named King David and his kingdom, which we read about in the book of 2 Samuel. You see, uh, it's no exaggeration to say that the book of 2 Samuel is almost a pivotal point, certainly in the Old Testament, of God's unfolding revelation of what His kingdom was look, would look like. So, unfolding revelation is a, is a term, uh, sometimes theologians, commentators use it to, to describe God revealing gradually over time about something. So, God's kingdom, what's it going to look like? He's, he's revealing in small snippets, a bit at a time, what God's kingdom is going to look like one day. And actually, the book of 2 Samuel is pivotal. And so, uh, for example, one Bible commentator, John Woodhouse, uh, writes this. He says, at the risk of oversimplification, we can say that everything in the Old Testament before David, Genesis to 1 Samuel, is leading up to his reign, and everything after David, 1 Kings to Malachi, looks back to David's kingdom and confirms the expectation that this was the beginning of something of monumental importance for the whole world. 2 Samuel is a pivot point. And over the next 10 weeks, we're going to together study the book of 2 Samuel. And as we do, we're going to learn a lot about this guy, David, and his kingdom. Uh, But it's not just because we're history buffs. It's because as we study David and his kingdom, it's going to cast light on, it's going to point forward to, it's going to teach us all about Jesus and his kingdom. Now, there won't be a one-to-one correlation. As the uh, series of the title suggests, um, David is far from perfect, and so it's a bit of a bumpy ride for he and his kingdom. Uh, Over the course of the coming weeks, we will see David and his sons kind of rise and fall a little bit. Uh, But by ways of types and shadows, that is sort of just almost by reflection, by glimpses, we will be taught more and more about uh, King Jesus and the kingdom to come. And so my prayer as we study 2 Samuel is that we would actually grow more and more to love King Jesus, that we'd see more and more what it looks like to be workers in His kingdom, and really that we would grow more deeply to understand what it means to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, In terms of how we spend our time today, we're really going to zoom in and focus on the first half of chapter 5, because this is where David finally... Uh, is made king of all the tribes of Israel, the the 12 tribes. Uh, Now, if you were with us when we studied uh, 1 Samuel last year, so last year, term 1, we looked at the book of 1 Samuel. If you were with us, you may vaguely recall that David becoming king of Israel has been a long time coming. Like We've been waiting for this a little while. Uh, I won't fill you in on the whole backstory now, because some of that will come as we go through, but There's a guy named Saul, he's Israel's first king. He's effectively the people's choice. Uh, So he looked great on the outside, uh, but on the inside he's lacking, and so uh, a number of times he fails to trust and obey God. So he's a bad king. Uh, In the end, God says, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, Saul, and give it to someone else. He's going to be a man of my choosing, right? Not the people's choice, God's choice. And this time it's to a man named David. And so right back in 1 Samuel chapter 16... 20 chapters ago, God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David as Israel's next king. Again, that's 20 chapters ago. Uh, At the time of his anointing, David is a young shepherd boy. 
Uh, we don't exactly know how old he is, probably somewhere between 12 and 15 years old. As we see in today's passage, so he's 12 and 15 there, he's 37 when he is made king over Israel. So today's a big passage for us because we've been waiting 20 chapters for it. It's an even bigger moment for King David because he's been waiting over 20 years for it. But as we're going to see today, finally, after all the waiting and the anticipation and the running from Saul and hiding in caves, the people of Israel are going to come and anoint him king over the nation. So how's today going to work? What is it going to teach us? Remember I said the key theme really of the whole book is the kingdom of God. And so effectively, just to help us make our way through the story, I'm going to ask, what does it teach us about God's kingdom? I'm going to suggest it has something to teach us about God's people, God's king, God's enemies, and God's city. God's people, God's king, God's enemies, God's city. I think that's going to help us make sense of the passage, as well as stir our hearts for God's kingdom. So let's jump in. Uh, If you have a Bible, get it open in front of you to Samuel chapter 5. That's where we are going to be. What's it have to teach us about God's people? Verse 1. It says, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. Now, are the fact that all the tribes, all the tribes of Israel are coming to David at Hebron, that's significant. Uh, Israel is made up of 12 tribes. These were the descendants of each of the 12 sons of a guy named Jacob. David, this guy, is a descendant of Judah, so he's part of the tribe of Judah, but there's 11 other tribes. Now, the tribe of Judah actually came and made David king over them earlier in the book. So this is part of what I'm going to do here is just unpack what's happened in the first four chapters of the book. So back in chapter 2, verse 4, we read, Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. That was seven and a half years ago. Right? So they've been, he's been king for a while. Uh, the old king, Saul, he's fallen in battle. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 31. David was the next guy in line. And so the people of Judah do what they were supposed to. They recognize, okay, God rejected Saul. David was his choice of king. Let's make king, sorry, let's make David king over us. That's Judah. The other 11 tribes, however, are a little slower to get on board with the plan. And so we read this in chapter uh, 2, verse 8 and 9. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, the old king, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Right, for several years, there's division and civil war among the people of God. You've got the kingdom of Judah with David as king, and they're faithful to David, the Lord's anointed. And then you have the kingdom of the other 11 tribes who've, who've set up Ishbosheth as their king, and they're sort of serving the son of Saul, God's rejected king. It goes on for some time. Um, but it, eventually, given David, not Saul, was the Lord's anointed, the one he chose, it was only a matter of time. The writing was on the wall from the beginning. Eventually, Ishrasheth's kingdom sort of fades away. And so uh, we get this summary, chapter 3, verse 1. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. What happens though? David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker until finally 
Ishbosheth is assassinated by two of his military leaders, and then that all brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Not just one tribe this time, but all Israel come to David at Hebron, and they make him king. So we skip down to chapter 5, verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Finally, the moment has come, David is the undisputed king. But suppose we ask, okay, why? Why did all of them, including the other 11 tribes, come make him king, finally? Uh, well, you know, theologically, if you like, or from God's perspective, it was always going to happen. So, it was, he's God's king, so it was going to happen. But from a human perspective, why? Like, what is going on in the minds of the other 11 tribes that after seven and a half years, they decide, oh, I guess we probably got to get on board with this thing. Well, the answer, in short, is that they finally came to their senses. They finally recognized the folly of opposing God's king, the Lord's anointed, and trying to set up a rival king in his place. In fact, you, you, you do even get a sense of this in something they say in verse 2. So we skipped over it. If you've got a Bible, have a look. I'll pull it up. Uh, they say to David, you know, in the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on military campaigns. In other words, even when Saul was king, David, we know God was the, using you to save us. You were the one who time and time again led us out into battle and fought our victory, won our victories for us. And so again, th this moment, the crowning of King David by all Israel is really a moment of them coming to their senses of them repenting of their folly and trying to set up a rival king and of actually committing themselves and saying, you know what, we recognize you are the king, we're going to come under you and serve you. And the truth is, a similar kind of thing happens today anytime someone comes to King Jesus. Coming to King Jesus really is a moment of coming to your senses. It's where we repent of living a life of folly in opposition to him. We recognize the foolishness of trying to live with rival kings, and frankly, we realize, you know, I've been serving idols, other things. God was the Jesus was the one saving me the whole time. And ultimately, it's a case of us coming and committing ourselves to live with Him as our King. In fact, I think this is the first thing that this passage teaches us about the Kingdom of God. And that is, in God's Kingdom, God's people recognize God's King. In God's Kingdom, God's people recognize God's King. So before we move on, it's probably just worth asking, have you done that yet? Maybe you are like the people of the tribe of Judah. You crowned Jesus King of your life years ago. If that's the case, awesome. Keep going. He's the Lord's anointed. You're on the winning team, so to put, so to speak. Keep serving Him, even when things look a little shaky. But maybe you realize, hmm, I'm probably closer to the other 11 tribes, I've been serving some other kings, worshipping other things in my life, maybe maybe I've actually been opposing the Lord's anointed King Jesus. I guess I just uh, warn you, that's a dangerous place to be, because as we will see, uh, nothing is going to stand in the way of God establishing the kingdom of His chosen King. So this is the first thing, what do we learn about God's people? Well, in God's kingdom, God's people recognize God's King. What's the second thing? What's the second thing? We're going to learn here something about God's king in the kingdom. Uh, we read this in verse 2. We read it in part before. Let's read it all uh, in full. 
It says, in the past, while Saul was king over us, you, David, were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, so this is, uh, this is either a direct quote or sort of definitely a faithful summary of the vibe of what God had spoken to David and what was widely known amongst all the people of Israel. So they kind of, God said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. Now, it's significant, I reckon, that God has said, you're going to shepherd my people. Uh, that's what God tells David. I think that's significant. First, it, it's significant that he just, they're my people, David. Uh, I'm just reminding you, that it might be your kingdom, but they're my people. And so I'm going to appoint you as king, but you are ruling them on my behalf. Uh, but second of all, it's significant that God describes David as a shepherd of his people. Because I think what that does for David is flesh out and um, expand what, what the task of kingship is going to look like. See, it, it was fairly common in the ancient world to describe a king as a shepherd. Uh, it's fairly common in the ancient Near East. But David actually was a shepherd. He'd come from being a shepherd. And so back in 1 Samuel 16, when uh, Samuel is sent to anoint David as king, he's not in the house. He's out with the sheep. He's being a shepherd. And so when God comes to Samuel and says, hey, sorry, to David and says, hey, you're, you're going to be the shepherd of my people, that shaped his understanding of kingship. He knew what that meant. Uh, the problem is you and I, uh, not so much. Uh, maybe depending on your background, you've had some shepherding experience or grown up in the country, I don't know. But uh, certainly for, for me, uh, for other city slickers, uh, my, the entirety of my uh, understanding of shepherding is mostly formed by kids' Bibles because uh, I grew up in a Christian family where we read the Bible anyway. I, I looked at one of my kids' Bibles this week and I flicked to the section where David is introduced. And what it depicts is this soft-looking kid reclining under a tree on a flower-covered hill with his harp and a fluffy-looking sheep sitting next to him. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with playing the harp. David was very good at it. Um, but if being a shepherd is all about sitting on fluffy, flowery hills, it's not entirely clear why that is going to make for a really good king, is it? But again, David knew what a shepherd was like. He'd done it before. And so uh, have a listen to how he describes his experience of being a shepherd back uh, in 1 Samuel 17. He says, But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. He's a shepherd. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Imagine you're a shepherd just for a moment. You're in the hills, you're in the somewhere, on the green pastures. And a lion or a bear comes and takes one of your sheep and runs off with it. What are you doing? I don't know about you, I'm saying, God bless you, little sheepy. <laughs> uh, lion, enjoy some good lamb chops. Bear, have lamb ragu or something like, go for it. We're talking about lions and bears and tigers, oh my. Uh, what does David do? Uh, he not only goes after the lion or the bear, he rescues the sheep somehow from its mouth and then when the lion or bear turns on him, he strikes it with his bare hands and kills it. What a weapon! No wonder God chose that guy to be the shepherd of his people. If he's willing to risk his life to save an animal, 
how much more will he be willing to put his body on the line to do what's necessary to save the people of God? Now, uh, for all David's strengths, he's far from perfect, and we're going to see this in a, as the weeks progress. And so he, he didn't always live up to the calling of being the shepherd he could have or should have, but he does point us forward to his greater descendant, uh, King Jesus, who describes himself in these words, John 10, 11 to 15. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. I'm a good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me and I lay down my life for the sheep. No wonder God chose that guy to be the shepherd of his people. See, no matter, Grace City, no matter how strong or independent you feel, and the truth is, we have moments of vulnerability, don't we? But most of the time, I suspect many of us feel relatively independent, self-reliant, strong. No matter how independent, self-reliant you feel, the Bible says we're far more vulnerable than we realize. Actually, we're, we're a little like sheep. We are powerless to defend ourselves against the wolves of Satan, sin and death who prowl around seeking to devour us and condemn us to a life and an eternity without God. What we need is a saviour. What we need is a good shepherd, a shepherd like David who's willing to risk his life to save us out of the wolf's mouth and turn around and kill it once and for all once he's done. That's what we have in Jesus. At the cross, the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, people like you and I. And so I want to say, if you're maybe a little on the fence about recognizing Jesus as king, remember in God's kingdom, God's people recognize God's king. If you're on the fence about doing that, because you're like, oh, I don't really know what he's like, you've got to know King Jesus is not a tyrant out to make your life a living hell. He's a good shepherd who laid down his life to save you from a living hell. And so why not today enter his kingdom by faith? Trust in him, because he is the good shepherd. What do we learn about the kingdom in this passage? God's king is the saviour and shepherd of his sheep. What's the third thing? Uh, This time it's going to be something we learn about uh, God's enemies. So we're going to see this in verse 6 and following. It says, The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. Now, if you're at all familiar uh, with the Bible, you will know that Jerusalem goes on to become a major deal. Right? It's big. Uh, we're going to see a little bit about that in the, in the second, uh, in the, our next point. But at this point in biblical history... Jerusalem's not much of a big deal. If anything, it's almost a sore point for the people of God. I say that because Jerusalem, it's part of the tribe of Benjamin, it's in their territory. It's part of the promised land that God promised to his people, but they never appear to have fully conquered it, sort of only ever half conquered, and even then only temporarily conquered. And so just two verses just to illustrate this. 
Joshua 15, 63, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So Judah, that's uh, David's tribe. And so the Jebusites, Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Right? So that's David, uh, sorry, the J- Judah. This one though, our Judges 121, but the people of Benjamin, different tribe, that's the tribe of Saul if you're following, did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites who live with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. What's the point? Prior to David, both the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, they've tried unsuccessfully to get rid of the Jebusites. And so they're all sort of intermingling. And now what's more, now that David is king over his kingdom, he still has this sort of stronghold of Jebusite resistance to his authority, to his realm. Uh, And they're mocking him. They're resisting his rule. Uh, If you have it in your Bible, verse 6, just cast your eyes back. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. Uh, Some of you will know that Jerusalem is on top of a mountain and this fortress that they're in is a part of Jerusalem where it effectively has a cliff on three separate sides. And so it's almost impenetrable. Keyword, almost. Uh, The Jebusites, therefore, are feeling pretty confident. They're thinking, yeah, we could post an army of blind and blind people, uh, lame and blind people. Uh, That's enough to defend this place because there's no way David's getting up. As we've seen, their confidence is misplaced. Uh, According to verse 8, they capture the fortress by climbing up the water shaft. And in some ways, we shouldn't be surprised. Why will, sooner or later... Those who set themselves up against the Lord and His anointed will be cast down and banished from His presence. Sooner or later, those who set themselves up in opposition to the Lord's anointed will be cast down and banished from His presence. In fact, I I think that's what 2 Samuel um, 5 verse 8 is getting at. Uh, It's a funny little uh, section, but let's just read it. It says, On that day, David had said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind. Notice the kind of the brackets here, or the, what are they, quotation marks? Those things. Um, Who are David's enemies. That is why they say, and then this, this saying that appears to have sort of carried on since that time, the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. Now, if you read that verse without any awareness of the context, it sounds a little like David is being ableist, as in, you know, you're asking the question, what's he got against the blind and the lame? Like, why can't they enter in? Um, but blind, and it, it's code for, it, or it's synonymous with the Jebusites. It is, you, know, you, you said you could defend us with blind and lame. Well, forever, that's what we'll call it. you. Are, the Jebusites are the blind and lame. Now, this saying has developed, the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. Uh, for the sake of full disclosure, uh, it's not entirely clear, or there's a little bit of a, a debate around that one, uh, partly because it, it's not quite clear whether the word at the end there, palace, or the word is, is house in the original, so it's not quite clear, is it, which house? Is it the temple, is it the palace, or is it city more generally? Um, what is clear though is that from this point on, Anyone who failed to recognize the authority and the right of God's king in Jerusalem wasn't allowed in. That seems to be the meaning, more generally. Which is another principle that carries through in the kingdom of God. See, after his death and resurrection, 
Jesus appears to his disciples and he says to them, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, That's a claim to kingship. Jesus says, I'm the king. All authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth. The thing is, a little like with David's, there are pockets and places in God's kingdom, so to speak, or realm, on earth where people are resisting his rule. Uh, Some, even like the Jebusites, might mock him and confidently assume that he is powerless to defeat them. But as with David, so with Jesus. There will come a day where King Jesus will return and banish all who stand in opposition to his rule. Uh, Speaking of the heavenly city this time, Revelation 21, beautiful passage, Kind of towards the end, I think this is actually the last verse of Revelation 21. Verse 27 says, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb there is the Lord's anointed, King Jesus. And so again, we're learning another principle about the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, God's king will one day banish his enemies and shut them out from his presence. And so again, I guess... I've got to ask you, is that you? Now, I suspect you're thinking, I'm not like the Jebusites standing there and taunting Jesus, saying, ha, 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 you can't get me. Um, But opposition to Jesus is not always so explicit. Sometimes it's just not um, recognizing his authority, not submitting to him, not serving him. So if it is, I guess I just want to encourage you again, learn from the example of the Jebusites. One day, the king will come. And when he does, nothing will stand in his way. So why not recognize his rule now while you still can? Fourth and finally, uh, what do we learn about the God city? Uh, Well, uh, read with me 9 and 10. It says, David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inwards and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. As I mentioned earlier, um, Jerusalem prior to this point, not much of a big deal. After, like from here onwards, Jerusalem, the Bible is all about Jerusalem. Sort of gets picked up, all sorts of language. There's Psalms about it. It's called Zion some places. There's the heavenly new Jerusalem. Why is it such a big deal? Well, Jerusalem becomes a big deal not because anything necessarily is important about it, but more because it is the city of the great king, and therefore where God chooses to make his presence known. Well, again, that's a principle that follows through, because in the same way that the old city of Jerusalem was significant because it was the city of God's king, so too the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, is significant because it's the city of Jesus. That's where King Jesus reigns and rules from. That's what makes it so great. As the Bible makes clear, what a city it will be. What a city it will be. Again, uh, Revelation 21. I feel like I've referred to it a couple of times recently, but uh, the heavenly Jerusalem is described as this place where God will wipe every tear from our eyes, where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And through his earthly ministry, Jesus also gives us a little taste of what his kingdom, his city is going to be like. So there's this beautiful moment in uh, Matthew 21 where almost in this uh, 
ironic reversal of the Jebusite taunt. The lame and the blind come to Jesus and he's in the temple and he, he doesn't say, no, you're not allowed to enter the house. He heals them. It's a little taste. It's a foreshadow of what his kingdom is going to be like. No more death or crying or mourning or pain. Even the blind and the lame can see and walk. Place of rejoicing. What a kingdom it will be. Now, if we come back to 2 Samuel, uh, we're almost there. Verse 11 and 12 says, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Man, how times have changed for David, eh? Uh, a couple of years ago, he was hiding in the caves. Now he has a king of a foreign nation building a royal palace for him. And he knows it's all because God has established his king. It's all God. And he knows it's only for the sake of his kingdom, for his people. Now, for what it's worth, uh, the king of Tyre probably has slightly mixed motives here. Uh, on the one hand, part of the reason he's building a palace for David would have been, we suspect, uh, to gain access to the trade routes that now are part of David's kingdom. So it's good for the king of Tyre and his kingdom. But it's also almost certainly a recognition of David's greatness. God has established David. So David on the throne in Jerusalem is a blessing to the nations. Now, it's probably uh, slightly too far to say that well, the king of Tyre all of a sudden starts worshipping Israel's God. But it is interesting the way that his actions here point forward to and kind of remind us of this picture we're going to see in Revelation 21. So again, come with me. Revelation 21, 22 to 26. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and listen to this, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. The splendor of kings and the glory and honor of nations is most likely a reference to their worship. In other words... It won't just be the faithful of Israel that inhabit the heavenly, the new Jerusalem. Uh, in a way that the actions of the king of Tar only very dimly point forward to uh, heaven will be full of kings, people from nations, bringing the splendor of their worship and laying it at the foot of God's king. It's not just going to be Israel, it's going to be the nations flocking to the home of God's king. Good news is we don't have to wait until then to bring our lives and lay them at the foot of King Jesus. And so I want to encourage you one last time, whether you've done it already or today's the first day, bring the splendor of your life and lay it at the foot of God's anointed King. Not so that you can get some spiritual equivalent of a trade route through His kingdom, because He's worth it. He's God's anointed. He's the good shepherd. He's not a tyrant. He's the one who laid down His life for people like you and I, to save us from the wolves, that we might spend eternity with him in a kingdom that will never perish, spoil or fade. So bring your life, lay it at his feet. He's worth it. Fourth and final thing we learn, God's city is the home of God's king and all who worship him. Let me close. As we do, uh, let me go back to where we started. I started by saying, I reckon the kingdom of God is the central theme of the Bible. 
uh, main dynamic at work in the Christian life, and ultimately the trajectory of all things. And I reckon you get a, a beautiful glimpse of it in 2 Samuel chapter 5. That's only a glimpse, but you do see, okay, in God's kingdom, wow, God's people recognize God's king. God's king is a savior and shepherd of his people. God will banish his enemies one day. And the city of God is the home of his king and those who worship him. Bring it on, thy kingdom come, Lord. Now, as we continue in the coming weeks, we'll, we will increasingly see uh, a disconnect between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of David. And so it'll only ever be foreshadowing and sometimes very dimly the shadow of David will point forward to the kingdom of God. As far as kings go, he was good, but he's far from perfect. And actually, you get a little hint of this, an ominous note of sign and a sign of things to come in our passage. We won't read it, but you would have noticed it as it was read out for us before. You know that bit, verse 13 to 16, where we're told and David took more concubines and wives and here's the sons and daughters. We all read that and we're like, awkward. <laughs> Such a great king. Now, you're probably aware, it's not uncommon. In fact, it's entirely common, very common in the ancient world for the kings to take a harem. But Israel's king was supposed to be different. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 explicitly forbids the king from taking many wives for himself. And ultimately, it's actually going to be David's We'll see this in a couple of weeks' time. David's failure to check his own lusts that will lead to his own greatest moral failure and ultimately uh, the introduction as a consequence of that of death, of rape, of incest, of adultery, of uh, rebellion and division both in his own family and as a kingdom more broadly. So again, he's a good king, but he's not a perfect king. And so... As we go in the weeks to come, I think I want to encourage you, yes, learn a lot about David and his kingdom, but let his kingdom stir your heart and fuel your desire for God to bring the kingdom of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and establish it once and for all. And so if you know it, uh, I'm going to invite you to join me and we'll pray it out loud together, uh, the prayer as Jesus taught us to pray. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.